Well, if you're um, new and visiting today, no, Dave Taylor hasn't just got decidedly younger. Uh, my name's Brendan. Um, I'm part of the core team here, and um, we're so pleased you could join us if you're joining us for the first time. We'd love to meet you, so make sure you come and say hi and um, give us a hug if hugs are your thing. Um, but isn't it so good that we can come together afresh this morning as the body of Christ and, and just meet together? Um, I think it's a beautiful thing. Well, um, if you're new and joining us for the first time, we're also in the middle of a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. And last week we heard from Dave about, uh, about baptism. And this week we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. And I think when it comes to the Lord's Supper, many of us have legitimate questions. I mean, have you ever wondered what it's all about? I mean, why do we do it? I mean, what does it mean? What's the significance of the Lord's Supper? Maybe if you're joining us for the first time, and maybe you're not a Christian, it just might be really confusing. I mean, you get this little bit of wine or grape juice and a little bit of bread. I mean, what sort of meal is this? You know, in the words of Derek Zoolander, is this a meal for ants? Um, Thank you. <laughs> Glad you laughed at my jokes. Very few people do. Um, I, I don't know if you've been, ever been had the experience of visiting another church and, and attending the church. I mean, here at Sovereign Grace, we kind of uh, take it all together, but in our own time, and, and you're attending a different church, and you're just assuming that everyone does the Lord's Supper the same way, and they pass around the elements, and you've got your bread, and you've got your wine, and you, you, know, you pray and reflect, and then you eat your bread and drink your wine, and then the minister at the front says, Now... On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. Now eat and, re- and give thanks that Christ died for you. And suddenly everyone's eating and you've already eaten it. So you're, you're doing the little pretend ones and you're doing the pretend drink afterwards. I mean, sometimes the Lord's Supper can be confusing and embarrassing. Um, but I guess if, if you're sitting here today and for you the Lord's Supper is confusing and embarrassing and you struggle to know the significance... I think the Lord wants to correct this. I think the Lord wants to help you to see his purpose and plan in the Lord's Supper, in communion. And today we're going to be looking at a passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. And I think it's a great passage for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, because it tells you how not to do the Lord's Supper. Um, but in addition, it just really beautifully illustrates to us about the Lord's Supper and its purpose and significance. This is a topical message, it's a topical series. I'm not going to be sort of exegeting through it in order, um, but we're going to be basing a lot of what we have to say today around it. So if you've got your Bibles, um, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to read from verse 17 and then pray. 1 Corinthians 17. 11.17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Oh, for there must be Factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, together this morning, we want to thank you. We want to thank you as your body, your church, for the glorious gift of your son. Oh Lord, we did not deserve it, Lord, far from it. It's the opposite of what we deserved. And, that, and yet you have loved us with a love beyond anything we can imagine. Lord, as we come to examine this gift of your supper, Lord, would you help us to understand it and give thanks to you always for it. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. The Usual Suspects, uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, came out in 1995. And I don't know if you're familiar with The Usual Suspects. Um, Hannah Wong, maybe not, maybe a bit too young, 1995. Um, But The Usual Suspects, 
uh, starts off with basically Special Agent Dave Kujan. He's an FBI agent investigating this massive murder. It seems to be like a, a drug bust, drug deal gone wrong. And he's sitting in his office and interviewing this, this, this guy who they've picked up at, at the site of the crime. His name is Verbal Kent. Um, he's this uh, disabled, a petty thief, a small-time criminal played by Kevin Spacey. And the, the, the movie unfolds as Special Agent Kujan interrogates and asks questions of Verbal Kent. And Verbal tells this amazing story explaining what happened on the night. And as Verbal explains this story, it gets more and more complicated and it's intriguing about murder and mystery. And basically, his account of the events which the movie follows portrays Verbal as being just this, this pathetic, weak, petty thief that's caught up in the, with the wrong crowd and is at the wrong place and at the wrong time. And there's this evil mastermind called uh, Kaiser Serze, who's the... The, the villain who's planned and plotted the whole thing and carried it out, who's responsible. So after this long interview with Verbal, um, it seems obvious that he's not responsible and he leaves uh, Special Agent Kujan's office and posts bail. And there's this famous, famous scene of Special Agent Kujan sitting on his desk looking at his notice board. It's his notice board. I mean, it's got all of these different things posted up on it. I mean, I'm sure he's seen it every day. And as he sits there staring at this notice board, suddenly the camera swivels to his hand and he drops his coffee mug and it shatters on the floor. And the reason is, is that as Special Agent Kujan looks at his notice board, he sees all of these different names and people and photos And all of these names and people and photos that are from his notice board in his office, he remembers, are names and people and photos from the story that Verbal just told him. And so in that moment, looking at his notice board, he realizes that Verbal's story is a complete lie. And Verbal is the the criminal mastermind who who has done this horrific murder. And the, and the movie ends with Verbal walking away and stepping into a car because it's too late. Special Agent Kujan can't get to him in time to arrest him. What's so beautiful about this story, I think, is that it tells us something, doesn't it? It shows us that failing to notice the significance of the everyday can sometimes have disastrous consequences failing to notice the significance of something that would have been in front of Special Agent Kujan every single day. The solution to this great uh, crime and, and who was responsible was right in front of him every day. Failing to notice the significance of the everyday can sometimes have disastrous consequences. And I put to you that failing to appreciate the significance of the Lord's Supper, something that we do almost every day, every so frequently in church life, an everyday thing. Failing to appreciate the significance of the Lord's Supper is a profound mistake with potentially disastrous consequences. We're going to proceed today, uh, for those that take notes, by trying to answer three questions. 
is what I want to do today as we examine the Lord's Supper and try and address this issue of its significance. We're going to spend nearly all of our time with the first question, which is, what is so significant about the Lord's Supper? And then we're going to spend uh, just briefly answering two further questions, which are, secondly, who should partake in the Lord's Supper? And thirdly, how should we partake in the Lord's Supper? Well, as we learnt last week, um, what is so significant about the Lord's Supper? As we, as we learnt last week from Dave, uh, the Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances, things that are ordained by Christ, given to us by Christ. And, and, and these ordinances, these sacraments, some other people would prefer to call them, they're not, they're not about saving grace, but rather they're signs and seals. They're signs, they're, they're things that picture something else that are illustrations of something else, and they're seals, they're things that affirm to us truth, that, that, that concretely seal things for us. Signs and seals. Baptism, we learnt last week, is a sign and seal of entry into the church, into those belonging to God. It's a sign of and seal of entry into the church. And communion, following on from this, is a sign and seal of continuing fellowship with Christ or communion with Christ. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of continuing fellowship with Christ or communion with Christ. If, if baptism is the front door, I put to you, communion is the dining table. J.I. Packer puts it this way. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship, taking the form of a ceremonial meal in which Christ's servants share bread and wine in memory of their crucified Lord and in celebration of the new covenant relationship with God through Christ's death. It's a ceremonial meal in which we remember and celebrate our new relationship following Christ's death. Our statement of faith, which is largely based on the uh, Westminster Confession, and I encourage you guys to to get into it and really examine the, the things that as a church we believe, says, the Lord's Supper is that rite instituted by Christ that symbolizes the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood on behalf of believers. It is to be observed repeatedly throughout the Christian life as a sign of continued participation in the atoning benefits of Christ's death. As we partake of the Lord's Supper with an attitude of faith and self-examination, we remember and proclaim the death of Christ, receive spiritual nourishment for our souls and signify our unity with the members of Christ's body. We're going to try and now move to unpack these statements as we look at what is the significance of the Lord's Supper for believers. And I want to unpack those statements by looking at three different levels of meaning, three different areas of significance that the Lord's Supper has for us. And they are past, present and future. Well, significance from the past. I think as soon as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are immediately driven back to the past. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to jump to the middle of that passage that we read, verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23. So why don't you read that with me? 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. On the night when he was betrayed, took bread. It's an event in the past, but it's more than that. There's a meal going on here, isn't there? And in order to properly understand that, we need to go back into the past. But we need to go further back in the past than when Jesus was having this meal. We need to go right back and trace the history of meals throughout the Bible. In fact, going back to the very beginning, in the garden where Adam and Eve were dwelling in Eden. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were were dwelling together in, in the garden and they had a meal. But their meal in Genesis 3 was without God and was breaking of the covenant. They ate from the fruit of that tree, though they were told to not to by God. And ever since death and evil has reigned in this world. But it doesn't just stay there with the first meal of Adam and Eve in the garden. It moves on quickly to Abraham. Abraham, an idol worshipper, a pagan who didn't know God at all. And yet God appears to him just in a a clear act of mercy, appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says to him, he says, go, I'm going to make you into a great nation from you and through you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Everyone's going to be blessed through you. But jump forward a couple of chapters to Genesis 14 and this, this man, this mysterious prophet, king, priest, king, appears on the scene, Mechizeldek. Mechizeldek appears on the scene and comes to Abraham and they have a meal together. He brings bread and he brings wine in Genesis 14 and they eat together and they seal the covenant. I think for us, when we think about meals and about treaties or covenant, we think like, State dinners, like, you know, there's been some peace deal between Palestine and Israel. And then you get like this big state dinner with like Hillary Clinton and all the leaders getting together and they're celebrating what's already happened. But we need to understand that, that in the ancient world, meals were about making the covenant, were about setting the covenant. And so when Abraham meets with Mechizeldek, they are sealing this promise that God has made to Abraham. They're sealing it. The covenant is sealed in that moment. Moving on from there, Abraham is blessed with a son, Isaac. And Isaac also has children, Jacob, who God later names Israel. And Israel has many sons, and the youngest of his sons is Joseph. And we know the story about Joseph, don't we? How Joseph is this arrogant kid um, who rules over his brothers and is arrogant towards his brothers. So his brothers fake his death, bury him in a well, send him off and sell him to slavery where he ends up in Egypt. And he rises through the ranks in Egypt until eventually he is in almost the, the highest position in all of Egypt while there is a great famine in the land. And Joseph's brothers, they come to him in Egypt and they're in desperate need. And, and Joseph gives them food and they're reunited and the people of God end up dwelling in Egypt. But soon with successive pharaohs and in time, they forget Joseph and everything he's done. And the the people of God are soon in slavery. And then Moses comes onto the scene and God appears to Moses and sends him out as a prophet to his people to set his people free. And there's these 
plagues, these terrible plagues that God sends to try and convince Pharaoh to let my people go. And we remember that final plague, that very final plague where God says, I'm going to send a terrible plague and my angel of death will go amongst the people and every firstborn son will be dead. But for my people, in order to prevent me, in order that I might pass over my people, he gives them the Passover meal. He says to them, bake unleavened bread, bread that has no yeast, and mix it with bitter herbs. He tells them to take a one-year-old lamb and slaughter it and sprinkle blood, pour blood on the posts to the doors. And he tells them to meet inside their home and break that bread and eat it and eat the lamb and celebrate what he is about to do amongst them. And so, of course, the angel of the Lord passed through the Egyptians and the people are set free and the Lord passes over them. And since then, they institute this this Passover meal, this Passover remembrance meal in order that they might perpetually remember what the Lord has done for them. And I think often when it comes to this idea of remembering, we think about remembering in terms of like the dawn service, right? We're thinking about and remembering people that are no longer with us, that have died, something that isn't the case anymore. And we're also remembering something that happened long ago. But this is not the remembering of the Jews, of the Jewish people, not at all. The remembering of the Jewish people is to, to, to stand and to say, I consider myself as having been there. You know, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy is written by Moses when they've been in, in the plains of Moab and, 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 Mo, and Moses is almost dead. He's, he's in his last, last years. And he, it's three big sermons that he gives. And the people of God, it's been nearly 40 years and they're just about to enter into the promised land and nearly all, all of the previous generation is dead. And yet time and time again, as Moses speaks to the people, he says, he says to them, he says, remember when you were in Egypt and remember when, how the Lord saved you from affliction and remember how he guided you and remember the signs he sent. Remember, remember, remember. Well, what's the problem with this? The problem is that the people that he's talking to weren't even there. The people that he's speaking to weren't even alive yet. It's their parents that, that he's referring to, but his parent, their parents are dead. What he is saying to the people of God is saying, you remember this and you remember it as though you were there. Because what God did for you then, he continues to do for you now. And so he institutes this special meal. And for 1,200 years, they continue to repeat it again and again and again every year. Well, then moving ahead, we get to the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. And it's the day of unleavened bread when the lamb is sacrificed. And you can just picture it in your head, what's going on. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room of a small house and it's night time. And so you can imagine that there's maybe some small lamps lit in the room that are flickering. 
And all of the disciples are seated around a table and there is Jesus. He takes bread. He takes a cup of wine. And he completely rewrites nearly a thousand years of tradition. Why don't you read with me again from that verse 23 onwards. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I mean, the picture in my mind is so clear that the disciples and Jesus gathered around and Jesus, full knowing everything that's about to happen to him, You know, there's Judas, and he knows he will be betrayed by him, sitting right next to him. There are his disciples, completely clueless as to the things that are about to happen to him. But Jesus, knowing that his beard will be plucked, he'll be arrested and mocked, he'll be beaten, they will inflict terrible pain on him, they'll make him bleed, they will punch him in the face, they will spit on him, they will will put a mock trial together, they will condemn him to death, they will tear the flesh from his back and mock him naked. They will walk him to a hill outside the city. They will nail him to the cross. And there they will hang him and mock him and torment him. But the worst thing of all, that that his father will pour out wrath and anger towards him. And here Jesus sits with his disciples, knowing everything that is about to happen. And he says to them, whenever you come together, I don't want you to remember the Exodus anymore. I've got something else for you to remember. Look at this bread. This bread which was for you the, the bread of affliction, the bread that was meant to represent your affliction in Egypt. No, no, this is now my body. Broken for you. And he breaks the bread. And as they eat and finish their meal together, he, he takes a cup at the end of the meal, a cup of wine, and he says, this, this cup, this wine, it's blood. It's not the blood of the old sacrifices of the old covenant. No, it's it, this blood. It's my blood. I want you to drink this and remember me and my new promise, my new covenant with you. Now, just like Abraham, just like Moses before him, he sits with his disciples and he makes a new covenant over a meal. And so we remember you know, when we when we come together as God's people, like this today on Sunday, you know, we come to the Lord's table and we remember. But we don't just remember like 
we normally remember. We remember, we, we place ourselves back then and consider ourselves as having been there. We remember as though we were there. We remember that event, that table. We remember as we receive the bread and the wine, Christ's death. We remember. You know, this is like the... I was just thinking about this week. This is, this is exactly like what happens in some of the songs we sing, isn't it? Like this, this song that I love so much. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We remember as though we were there. The Lord's Supper has past significance for us, doesn't it? In that we remember Christ's atoning work. But it's not just past significance. It's also significance for the present. I think sometimes we get this remembering bit, but we think it stops there. I'm going to share with you another one of my favorite films. I feel like uh, whenever I preach, I overshare. And so I feel like this is going to, I'm going to get judged for this, but... uh, uh, the Lion King, uh, any fans out there at all? The Lion King, yep, <laughs> respect. Um, but The Lion King, there's that classic scene, isn't there, where um, it's Rafiki, who's that uh, baboon slash witch doctor, and uh, he, he's taken Simba, who's now kind of all grown up, and he's taken him out through to this this pool, this puddle, and takes him down and stirs it with his rod. And uh, Simba's looking in, and he looks into the, the, the pond, and first he sees his reflection, but it changes into the, the reflection of his father, Musafa, who's dead. And uh, he sees Musafa's picture in there, and then suddenly the clouds change, and psh, and then it's Musafa in the sky, you know, in a big cloud, and he's like, my son, you have forgotten me. And Simba's like, no, no, how could, I, how could I forget you? And he's like, yes, my son, you have forgotten me because you have forgotten who you are. You must take your place at the circle of life. And remember, he's like, and Simba's like, oh, how, how can I? I can't go back. I can never go back. I'm not who I used to be. And Masafa's like, you must look inside yourself and remember, remember, remember. And he like, and he fades into the background. And yeah, I mean, I might know it a little bit too well. Um, but I think that's, we, we come to the Lord's Supper and that's kind of how we treat it. It's just, it's, yeah, it's just about remembering. It's just about remembering. But no, I put to you that it's much more than just remembering. It has present significance as well, significance for the present. Uh, present. And firstly, in that it beautifully pictures our unity in Christ. Um, Returning to the, the original passage that I shared, just by way of context, the passage Paul's writing to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, and, and the, the whole letter is really about worship. It's about worldwide worship. He, he speaks to the people in Corinth and he says, you who are called out by God and who are amongst those who in every place call on the name of the Lord, in every place worship the Lord. And he's been, he's been warning them about idolatry in chapter 10 how to flee from it. In chapter 11, he's talking about, early at the start of chapter 11, he's talking about women who are addressing in an inappropriate fashion in church. And now he moves on to talk about the Lord's Supper. So why don't you read with me from the beginning of our passage, verse 17. 
He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Isn't that amazing? When you gather together to do this, you might as well not. You're doing more harm than good. It's, that's a really harsh rebuke. Let's read on. Verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions amongst you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think he's being ironic here. He's being funny. He's saying there needs to be factions amongst you so that these genuine people get recognized because you need to be recognized. I think he's, he's saying, of course, gen- genuine followers of Christ don't really need to be recognized. The point is, there is no need for divisions amongst you. Let's read on. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It's not even the Lord's Supper that they're having, Paul says to them. Why? They're exploiting the poor and making it like a pagan festival. I think just to, just to illustrate the point further, imagine if I said to you, I said, look, guys, we're going to do communion next, next week. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. And what I want to happen is, let's say, if you earn more than $50,000 a year, I want you to come here to church at 10.30 and uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and we're going to have you know, lots of bread and wine. It's going to be a great time. If you're less than, if you earn less than $50,000 a year, like if you're a student or anything like that or on a pension... Just you, don't, don't come when everyone else is here. I want you to come a bit later on. Um, you can have the scraps, the things that we're, we're finished with afterwards. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, imagine if you're Tim Corish, right? And you rock up to church at 12.30 after everyone's finished the Lord's Supper. And, and can you imagine just all these people absolutely sloshed? I mean, the, the, the principal's pictures have come off the wall. Someone's wearing the jackets. Um, <laughs> You know, people are gouging their faces. It's, it's a mess. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the situation? Well, what's Paul's primary issue with what's going on here? Well, I think in order to understand what the real issue with what's going on here is, we need to turn back to chapter 10, verse 16. So if you flick back in the page to chapter 10, 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Listen to this. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Did you catch that? Paul is saying because there is just one bread. That represents the body of Christ. There is also just one body, us, the church. We're meant to be united. Paul is saying here, he's saying, he's saying, you are what you eat. You've heard that expression before, right? You are what you eat. I mean, people will say to you all the time, they say to me, you know, 
Um, you know, you are what you eat. So if you eat lots of fatty food, you're probably fat, right? If you eat lots of vegetables, you're probably a vegetable. I think if you applied that literally to me, you know, I'd probably be a giant muffin because um, I eat sweets. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and, and what he's saying is because we eat this one same bread, we, we eat the same body of Christ. It's meant to be a picture of unity. We're all in this together. One church. The church is what it eats. One church, one bread, one body. A picture of our unity together in Christ. One Savior, the Lord Jesus. It's meant to be a picture of unity. But by exploiting others, exploiting the poor, they are despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a picture of our unity. That's its present significance. But it has more than that. It's also about spiritual nourishment. Christ and his benefits are communicated to us through the Lord's Supper. Spiritual nourishment. I think if you're not from a Reformed background here joining us today, this might be something completely new to you, the idea of it being spiritual nourishment. I want to just clearly express some things that we're not saying when we say we receive Christ and his benefits spiritually by faith through the Lord's Supper, that there is spiritual nourishment. What we're not saying in this is that we are saved through the Lord's Supper. We're not saying that. We're not saying that we change status before God through the Lord's Supper. We're also not saying that the bread and the wine change to be Christ's body and his blood. No, that's transubstantiation. That's what some people believe, particularly in the Catholic Church, that happens. That's not what we believe, that the bread and the wine change form. That's not what we believe. We believe Christ is risen, he's in heaven, he's coming again. We don't believe that he can be physically present with us until he comes again. But in the same token, in the same breath, we're also not saying that what happens when we meet together is just that we remember what Christ did. We're saying something else happens. Something more happens. We're saying that this is a means of grace that God gives to us, a way, a means by which he blesses us as a church. We're saying that it is a gracious gift to us from God. We receive Christ and his benefits spiritually by faith is what we are saying. And this is kind of this idea of receiving Christ spiritually and all of his benefits. I think this is probably something similar to what happens when the word is preached. When the word is preached, Christ is present in a special way, isn't he? When we read his word, when we hear it explained to us, he's present with us in a special way. I think that's probably a helpful way to think of this. Well, where do we get this from? Is this just Brendan, you know, plucking some crazy more college idea out of the air? Well, I think that the, the clearest expression of this, where this is from, is from the verses that we just read. So I'm going to read it to us, to you guys again. But what I want you to do is pay particular attention to the word participation as we read. I want you to really pay attention to that word. Again, chapter 10 from verse 16. 
the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not our participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not our participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are of one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Participation in the cup, he says. We participate in his blood. In the bread, he says, we participate in his body. He goes on to say it's kind of akin to the Israelites who when they had sacrifices and the priest would offer sacrifices and later there would be food left from the sacrifices and people of Israel would eat of that food. When they eat, participate in what has happened already. There's a participation. And the point is this, that there is a participation in Christ's sacrifice, a communion with him on the cross that occurs in the Lord's Supper. John Piper puts it this way. He says, When Jesus died, his shed blood and broken body offered up in his death on our behalf purchased all the promises of God. Paul says, All the promises of God find their yes in him. Every gift of God and all our joyful fellowship with God was obtained by the blood of Jesus. When Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He means, do we not at the Lord's table feast spiritually by faith on every spiritual blessing bought by the body and blood of Christ. No unbeliever can do that. The devil can't do it. It is a gift for the family. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. The Belgic Confession of Faith, which is a famous Reformed confession, puts it this way. It says in Article 35, Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. At that table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death. As he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor, desolate souls by the eating of his flesh and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. Isn't that a beautiful picture that we are comforted in our souls and relieved in our flesh as we receive the benefits of Christ on that cross, spiritually by faith, being nourished as we remember what he did for us in the Lord's Supper. Now, I put to you guys that this is what we talk about when we say the seal of communion. The seal, something that, that assures us of truth, like a king with a letter who rubber stamps it with a seal. It tells you that it's really from him. A wax imprint with his signet ring pressed into it. It's a mark of authenticity. It's something that assures us that something is true. 
And when we feast on Christ and his benefits spiritually by faith, we receive this seal. We receive assurance of our communion with Christ. Benefits of Jesus Christ, like peace with God, like joy in Christ, like hope for the future, like freedom from fear, like security and adversity, guidance and perplexity, healing from sickness, victory and temptation. We receive all of his benefits. So my point is this, that the Lord's Supper has present significance for us in that we receive spiritual nourishment. Christ and his benefits are communicated to us spiritually by faith. Thirdly, we proclaim the gospel. Verse 26. For the... Sorry, wrong chapter. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's proclamation. It's gospel proclamation. It's physically resembling, it's physically picturing what Christ has done for us in the bread and in the wine. And for us as a church, if if we desire to be a gospel-centered church, a church that is serious about continually proclaiming Christ's death and his resurrection, then the Lord's Supper must continue to be practiced regularly amongst us, mustn't it? Because when we do it, we declare the, the gospel central. We proclaim Christ's death and his resurrection. We proclaim the gospel. But it's more than just proclaiming the gospel. It's proclaiming the gospel until he comes. And that brings us to the third aspect of significance for the Lord's Supper, which is the future. Significance for the future. Verse 26, until he comes. It's for a limited time only, isn't it? It's when we're not going to be remembering Christ's death and his resurrection here forever. In fact, there is a time coming when his kingdom will come, as Jesus himself says in Luke 22. He says, this will be the last time that I will eat of this bread and drink of this cup with you until the kingdom comes, until my kingdom comes. He will come again once more, the bride and the bridegroom lamb reunited forever. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 9, there's this beautiful picture of of Christ with all of us, the saints, gathered around at a, a mighty table and feasting together in the wedding banquet once and for all. I mean, it's such a beautiful picture, eating together. I mean, when we eat meals together, it's, it's such a picture of, of intimacy, isn't it? And And closeness. I mean... Uh, some of my most precious memories are of times eating together with friends. You know, like uh, something I love and, you know, it's the sun's out, you know, spring's here, it's so beautiful outside and I love the smell of, of just the, 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 that summer smell in the air coming and the warmth on your skin and just being on holidays with, with good friends and maybe a really good steak on the barbie and your mates are together and you're chatting and you've got, you know, maybe a nice drop of wine or beer or a drink and, and you're just together and enjoying each other's company and it's a beautiful thing. I put to you that, that it's, it's, it's just a faint picture of what is to come. You know, we look forward to, we look, we look forward to a great banquet with Christ seated at the table with him, just like those disciples were 
back 2,000 years ago. But we will sit with him and we will feast with him. The Lord's Supper points also to the future. It has future significance. Well, the Lord's Supper has significance for us both past, present and future as we remember Christ's death, as we picture our unity, as we are spiritually nourished, as we proclaim the gospel and as we look forward to that final wedding feast. Well, question two, who should partake in the Lord's Supper? Well, simply put, it's for Christians. It's for those who trust in Christ alone as their Lord and as their Saviour. As their Lord, in the sense that they have given their life to Him, that they want to follow Him and make Him the Lord of their life as their Saviour, in that they're trusting in Him alone as the only way to be made right with God, trusting in His atoning work on that cross, in His blood and nothing else, trusting in Him by faith. And that means that it's not only for us as adults, but it's also for children. And so the Lord at his table also welcomes children. But the question becomes, how do we discern when it's appropriate for children to partake? And here at Sovereign Grace, we don't have a class or a course that we do. We, we believe that that is an issue for parents and their discernment. But I'd say that there are probably three things that would be important if you're a parent sitting here today for you to discern in your child Um, in order to know whether it's appropriate for them to partake in the Lord's Supper. Three things. Firstly, I would say when they can understand the significance of the Lord's Supper, when they understand the significance of the Lord's Supper, when they understand what it actually means, what it points to. Secondly, when they are able to give a convincing profession of faith in Jesus when they're able to say, yeah, I I really trust in Jesus. I'm trusting in him alone to be made right with God. Not just repeating the words, but in a convincing way, in a way that is credible. And thirdly, when they make a clear decision to follow the Lord in obedience. When that child has made a clear decision that they are going to make Jesus their Lord, and they're going to follow him in obedience. So those three points again, when they understand the significance of the Lord's Supper, when they are able to give a convincing profession of faith in Jesus, and when they make a clear decision to follow the Lord in obedience. So parents, um, really I, I, I don't think there is a set age in which this occurs. I think everyone's on a different journey, and so it requires discernment. Well, who should partake in the Lord's Supper? It's for Christians. And thirdly, and finally, how should we partake in the Lord's Supper? And the answer to that is by self-examination. You know, church, uh, many years ago, used to withhold communion from the unrepentant. And so you would come to the front to receive communion and the priest would raise his hands in the air and say, nope, none for you today, my friend. You are unrepentant. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is sometimes 
people will come and they seem to be repentant. But what you don't know is their heart is as hard as stone to the gospel. And on the flip side, some people seem to be unrepentant, but in fact, they are a weak brother who's caught in sin. And so we can't, we can't know what is going on in someone's heart. We don't know because we don't know their hearts. Well, why don't you read with me uh, further about this in verse 27 of our passage. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Eats and drinks without discerning the body. I think Paul here has two things intended, two different uses of the body. In verse 28, he's just been talking about examining yourself. So I think discerning the body means looking in at yourself, looking in at your heart and confessing your sins, confessing all the ways in which you have dishonored Christ, all of the things on your heart, ways in which you you need to repent. But uh, discerning the body, I think, also has another meaning. In the context, he's also been talking about the body, the body of Christ. So savor in that moment what the bread and what the, the, the cup, the wine point to. You know, his body broken and poured out. Reflect on his body here, the church which he brought. You know, renounce cheap love for the church. Renounce our failure to love and care for the poor, to a failure to live in light of the cross, our selfishness. We, we renounce and we repent of those things. We don't just renounce and we say, Lord, I don't want to do those things, but I trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and power to change. And, and we express just deep thankfulness for all that he's done for us in the cross. We examine ourselves. We discern the body, ourselves and the body of Christ. We partake in the Lord's Supper by repenting of our sins and remembering Christ's sacrifice and trusting in him for forgiveness. I just wanted to close and end this message just the way Paul does, and that is with a warning. So why don't you read with me, and we're going to reread from verse 27 all the way through to the end. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we are judged, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that 
when you come together, it will not be for judgment. You know, if you are a Christian and you partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and by unworthy, hear me right, it means in context in a callous, in a selfish, in a divisive and cruel manner, just like the Corinthians despising the church and, and humiliating the poor. If you partake in the Lord's Supper in that manner, God might kill you. He might strike you down, not in wrath towards you. No, he paid for that on the cross. But in his love for you and in his loving discipline for the church so that the church might not be condemned with the world. Uh, That is a strong warning. You know, friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come to the table, we have nothing to fear but we need to take care to examine ourselves. Well, like Special Agent Kujan in The the Usual Suspects, failing to notice the significance of the day can be a, of the everyday can be a costly mistake, can it? And so too, we we lose something precious when we fail to appreciate the significance of the Lord's Supper. What is its significance for us? Well, it's past, present, and future. As we remember what Christ did for us, as we proclaim our unity in Christ, as we are nourished spiritually, as we proclaim the gospel, as we look ahead to Christ and his return. Who is it for? It's for Christians. And thirdly, how do we partake in the Lord's Supper? By repenting of our sins, remembering Christ, and trusting in him for forgiveness and the power to change. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we come before you as a broken people who need constant reminders of your grace. Lord, we want to thank you for the precious gift you have given us in the Lord's Supper, in what is a physical reminder, picture of what you have done for us, Lord. Lord, I just pray for all of us that you would help us to savour the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to savour Christ and all of his atoning benefits as we meet together. And may we be a people deeply affected by your grace, your power, most beautifully displayed on that cross. And we pray, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.